We never used the term in theatre, but it was civil war. Every morning was a three-figure civilian death toll. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to lose it. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Colonel Rob Manton, who's now retired and is the chair of the Veterans Advisory Council in South Australia. Colonel Manton has had an extensive and significant career in both the Australian Defence Force and the public service supporting veterans. His career in the Australian Army spanned 30 years and involved multiple command appointments, operational service in Iraq, and advisory and peacekeeping roles with the United Nations, including as advisor to the Australian Ambassador to the United Nations. Rob, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me. So tell us first about where you grew up. I'm Tasmanian and I've heard all the Tasmanian jokes. So don't, uh, don't throw any of them at me. I'm, I was born in Hobart, lived and raised in Hobart. My parents, it was almost like being in the military because even though they weren't at the time, we moved every couple of years. They just kept buying a new house and we moved around and I was educated at St Virgil's College in Hobart in Tasmania. So where did the interest in the military come from? Did you have some kind of military history on your family or was it a favourite subject at school? Interestingly, a lot of the things that I've done throughout my career have been through a process of elimination and almost accidental. My paternal grandfather was in the Navy and served on a number of ships in the Second World War. My father was in the Navy and I had an uncle who was in the Army and he was posted to Tasmania. And it was one of those things where I figured, what am I doing with my life at, a, at an age of about 20, 21, where I was working, but I didn't really have much of a direction. And I looked at my uncle who'd been posted down there and saw what he was doing, what he had done in the army, and he'd served in Vietnam and what have you. And I decided that seems like a bit of a, more than a job, it's more a career than a job. Why the army, not the navy? Well, because my father and my paternal grandfather had been in the Navy, where my uncle was a little bit more distant. And I'll get to how that impacted what I did in the Army. So I thought, well, the Army is probably the best thing to do. Um, And so I applied for officer training. So what did being in the Army represent to you at that time? What did you think you were signing up for? It represented structure, which I probably didn't have at the time. I mean, I was having a great time, um, as most young people do, and, you know, I had a a good bunch of workmates and what have you. But as I said, really no long-term aspirations or goals. And I think the Army provided that, or the Defence provides that opportunity, I think, to have a a longer look at where do you want to be in five years, ten years' time. When people ask you that question and you're a civilian, you don't often have an answer. Where in the the Army you can say, I want to be a battery commander, I want to be a unit commander, I want to be a subunit commander, a platoon commander, whatever it is. And so it does give you that little bit of structure and and way of looking ahead. The first one you mentioned there was battery commander. Mm. So did artillery, which is the core you ended up in, did that always have some kind of attraction for you? No, it was another one of those process of elimination things. 
So when I was at the Officer Cadet School in Portsea, really the only thing I knew as I was going through my 12 months of training was that I wanted to be in an arms corps. I didn't know which arms corps. And I struck my uncle, who I mentioned earlier, was in the Armoured Corps. And so I thought, if I go into the Armoured Corps, I'm always going to be compared to him. So that's out. Your training at, when you're an officer cadet is all infantry-based. I didn't want to be an infantry officer. And so really that left me with artillery or engineers. I didn't think I was smart enough to do engineers to be in the engineer corps. And so I went the artillery route. Now talk us through what it was like doing that initial officer training. What was it like at that time? Because obviously it's changed over the years. Yeah, it has. I think the induction phase, those early few days, particularly where you have not previously served, so you've come in from Civvy Street, as we used to say, that shock and awe factor is very much still there. And I can still remember evenings sitting with a, a blanket over my over the light in my room, spit polishing boots and trying to get ready for the first parade and, and all those sorts of things. So there is that shock and awe, but I do recall the only time I really appreciated where I was at the Officer Cadet School of Portsea, right on Port Phillip Bay, was the day I graduated. Because up until then, it was all work. It was You were going from A to B and either to a range, to, a, to an activity of some sort. And it was really only as we marched down, we were invited to the officers' mess the morning after we graduated, and we marched down to the officers' mess. It was only then that I looked out and went, this is actually a really nice place, which I think, looking back, was something that I kind of missed, missed out on was just where we were at the time. Having said that, it was a 44-week course at that, at that time, I think. It may have been 48. You effectively did the equivalent of IET training in the first five or six weeks, and then everything was then directed at training you to be a platoon commander in a unit, in an infantry unit, but having an understanding of all the other supporting elements that you have to employ when you're commanding troops. At that time, were there any key people who were a big influence on you? Not so much at Portsea. My first posting was to four, what's now known as four regiment, four field regiment as it was then in Townsville. And at that stage, we had just, as an army, we had just developed this operational ready deployment force concept. And three brigade in Townsville was the ODF. So it was where all the resources were being pushed and everybody wanted to go there. In case something happened, that was the first they were the first units that would deploy if anything happened. Of course, nothing did for years until we went to Timor. And so this was back in 1982. When we arrived there, because there was this big push to turn us into an operationally based, more than a training based organisation, the commanders of at that time were selected to get this thing up and moving. So the brigade commander was a, a brigadier by the name of John Dighton. My first commanding officer was uh, Jim Ryan. They were hard nuts. We did things by the book. We would deploy on a two or three week exercise, um, return home, and we would not go home until everything was cleaned, inspected and ready to go again. And it was that mentality that really drove us. And so I would say that those fellows and my first adjutant battery commander, it's a fellow called Don Murray, they were the folks who really influenced me early on about professionalism and, and the always being ready for whatever might come next. Did you sense a change in yourself then as you were starting to get used to this new way of doing things, this new culture, and indeed that, that influence from your commanders? I think I did. It was an iterative process because Portsea taught you the discipline and the personal discipline to get up and moving all the time. But it was really only when I got to Townsville that it became really evident to me that this was more than just getting up in the morning and going to work. 
this was you you had a, a mission every day was a mission it's really something that whilst I, w- I didn't carry it through my career to the extent that those people did because I didn't have to it certainly set me up very well I often look back on my four years in four regiment with a great degree of gratitude because had I have gone to another unit I don't know that I would have developed the way that I did and had the career that I had you were on a trajectory in that you found yourself in command roles relatively early on. What kind of a commander were you? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I'm not sure I'd categorise myself in any particular way. I certainly wasn't ambitious. My goal was to be a subunit commander and to command troops. I think I still think that that's the greatest reward that any, any officer can have, certainly in the officer corps, is to command troops because I have the utmost respect and admiration for our troops and what they do, what they did then and what they do now and their families. So I certainly wasn't ambitious. It was never get out of my way. And when I get there, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just happy that I've arrived as the subunit commander or whatever. My aim was always to achieve the roles that we were given in the best possible way, using the resources the best possible way. But I I tried to employ what I called mission command directive control. So I would say to junior officers and and subordinates in the unit, here's what I need you to do. Here are the resources to get on and do it. If you need more, come and see me and I'll keep an eye on things and support you the best way that I can. And I guess translate that into a leadership style. That was my style was to be, here's what I want you to do. Give you some clear direction and then to stand back and allow you to get on and allow you to mess up as long as it wasn't you know, too bad, but, you know, we learn best by our, from our mistakes. You mentioned they're learning from your mistakes. Mm. What did you learn about yourself during those years and how did that perhaps change you and, and help you to develop? I'm not pumping up tyres here at all, but I actually learned that I was actually pretty good at it. I get on well with people. I got on well with subordinates and peers and superiors. And I think that enabled me to be able to get the best out of myself as well as those around me. I've always lived by that mantra of frank and fearless advice, and that was always forefront, and that worked up and down. I would give very strong advice down as well as provide some pretty frank and fearless advice up as well at times. It gets you into trouble every now and then, but that's part of the job. Now, you're also an instructor, or you became an instructor, and you performed that role over in the US. So tell us how that came about and and what it was like working over in the US. I was posted to Darwin as the CO of 812 Medium Regiment, as it was then, 812 Regiment as it is now, not long after the regiment moved to Darwin. And so the opportunity to command, you know, 400 plus soldiers and and a regiment was a pinnacle almost of my career. There was a subsequent one as well, which we can talk about later. Towards the end of that, I went to, before the Promotion Advisory Committee and was selected in a band that had me suitable for command but not yet and the powers that be and the career managers said well we we look after our former commanding officers so we're thinking of sending you to Leavenworth in Kansas which is the US Army Command and General Staff College so captains predominantly we our staff college is majors they do theirs as captains some majors and it's teaching them more or less that operational level of war that really difficult between tactical and strategic and, you know, being a, a staff officer on a formation headquarters, those sorts of things and, and um, unit command, those sort of responsibilities. And so it was a really rewarding experience. What I brought to them was that I tried to bring to them, and it comes quite naturally for us Australians, is that not larrikin, but laconic. Let's, we need to be serious, but let's be serious in a, in a, in a 
in a not so serious way. And I know that probably doesn't make sense, but it really resonated with um, the US students. The way they, their staff college is structured, their, their lessons are um, about three hour lessons. Um, so you have half day classes. Um, and I was in the more or less that operational level instructional branch that taught brigade and division level operations and planning. What I noticed was, or to break the ice in every class, I would start the classes off because you had time with a discussion about what happened yesterday. And I would often walk into the classroom, and this is when the Iraq war had just started. And President Bush was the US president, George W. And I would often walk in and look at this syndicate of 15, 20 students, young officers, and say, what did your president do last night? And it would start a discussion and it was in the syndicates that I was part of, obviously it was an international discussion because I was Australian and they weren't predominantly Americans. What was most interesting about it though was what I found is Americans, and I was only watching this on the news last night, they talked about, we're going to throw to the newsreader for news at home and around the world. All three items that they talked about were American. There was no international news whatsoever. And I tried to bring that to the classes that I taught. And I think the students were really appreciative of that because they realised that there is a lot more to the world than America. That There are these other countries out there with completely different cultures who look at things completely differently. And you, as an American, might look at them in a particular way and cannot, for the life of you, fathom how anyone can see it any different. But I was there to say, well, I can tell you, I can look at it differently and here's why. It was an eye-opening opportunity for me, and I think the students appreciated the fact that the international guy, he actually brings a, this is actually a bit of fun and a different perspective, so I think they learned a bit. And you then went on to deploy to Iraq, actually in theatre, in 2006. Just remind us, what was the situation on the ground at the time? What were you walking into? We never used the term in theatre, but it was civil war. So this was Shia and Sunni, and it was... Every night, we, we would wake up in the morning and, and, and go to the morning update, the battle update assessment, the BUA, as they call it. And every morning was a three-figure civilian death toll in Baghdad predominantly, where either Sunnis had taken out Shias or Shias had taken out Sunnis. And the Sunnis were, they employed death squads, so they would go and get Shia people and kill them and leave them on the side of the road. And the Shia were the suicide bombers, and they would walk into a Sunni market and detonate the suicide bomb. So it was pretty horrendous and it got worse. I had come from my previous appointment was as commandant of a combat arms training centre. I'd been briefed on the situation in that role before I went because Australia was deploying into the Basra area down south, but I wasn't aware of what was happening in the, nor in the middle of the country and in the north. We're talking, I think, $10 billion a month US funding for this and it was at the same time as the hurricane had been through New Orleans. And I would often sit outside with some of my American colleagues and they would have their heads in their hands and, and just saying, we're spending billions here. And yet my great, my uncle who lived in New Orleans hasn't got anywhere to live. Um, and there's a multi-billion dollar rebuild required. Um, and it was a really difficult time for them as well. Operationally, it was challenging in that without being too critical, I'm, I'm not sure there was there was a full understanding of what the Americans had got themselves into at that point. Colin Powell, I still recall saying at one point that telling President Bush, if you do this, you're going to own it. And they did, and I don't think they fully appreciated that. Equally, 
the first, I guess, US ambassador whose name escapes me, it was Brereton, something like that, Bremer. His edict to disband the Iraqi military was one of the greatest strategic errors because all of a sudden you went from having potentially some allies within the military to alienating them all. And anyone who had any association with the former government, with Saddam Hussein's government, was blacklisted. So they're all enemies as well. So instead of trying to find a way of bringing all this together in a, in a cogent sense, it was a step-by-step process of we can't do that because they were part of Saddam's regime, so get out of the way. So we don't want nothing more to do with you. Well, if you don't want anything more to do with them, what are you going to do with them? And it was that just fueled all the angst and the, the inter-religious warfare that was going on at the time. You mentioned a few moments ago about your time at CAT-C, the Combined Arms Training Centre. Just talk us through your time there and, and why it was so significant for your career. When I was the commandant there, it was actually the Combat Arms Training Centre. It now, it's now obviously changed its name to Combined Arms, which I think is absolutely appropriate. I'd come back from my time in the US uh, teaching at Staff College, at the, at the US Staff College, and was offered the position at CAT-C, which I grabbed. It was responsible for core training for the arms corps, engineer, armour, artillery and infantry. And it was a fantastic command appointment because it was, it was that next level. It was formation command. So having done subunit command and unit command, this was formation command. And to pick up formation command at colonel level was something, you know, I thought really something that I really wanted to do because I thought I could make a difference. What was interesting was that at the time I took over was just at the time that we went into Iraq. A fellow by the name of John Cantwell was the brigade commander who I had served with, uh, who I'd graduated with. He was in my class. In fact, he won every award at Portsea. The only thing he didn't win was the Sword of Honour. But John was the commander of the 1st Brigade from where much of that initial 2nd Cavalry Regiment group was deployed from under Roger Noble. We were transitioning to the Bushmaster vehicle. Um, We were still developing the training modules for the Bushmaster Um, We didn't really know what its capabilities were and what have you. And Peter Lay, General Lay, who was the Chief of Army, determined that these Bushmaster vehicles would deploy with the 1st Brigade group that was going under Roger Noble. And I can still recall having a conversation with John Cantwell. And John was saying, they're not armoured vehicles, so they're not going. And I said, well, no, they're not, but they're protected mobility and you'll need protected mobility. Um, and of course, what we now know is having had lots of discussions with John and then ultimately the, the decision was made that they would deploy and then we made changes to, the, to how they were structured over time. I think what we, what we then learned was that the, the Bushmaster vehicle was a real asset if it was structured and constructed properly, which we learned over time and deployed correctly. And so it was a really interesting time. It was the first time I'd really been involved in operational level discussions about what should go and what shouldn't go. And I wasn't even deploying at that stage. Um, I was merely making sure that we trained the right people. And of course, the other thing at that time was with the Bushmaster that the the transition course or the course to use the Bushmaster from a driver and commander perspective was still being written. And it was 11, 12 weeks long. We didn't have 11 or 12 weeks. We had like three or four. And we had to go through a process of really narrowing that that training, those training modules down. And, and a, the fellow who was put in charge of that was John Papalitsis. Um, he did a fantastic job of um, developing 
a condensed course that provided those people with what they needed to deploy. And it showed, again, the flexibility and with a bit of determination and um, uh, wherewithal and support, we could actually do things quite quickly. You've talked there about there being time pressure. Mm. You talked earlier about just the complexity of the geopolitical situation on the ground in Iraq when you deployed. How did you cope with that, given that you were obviously established in your career, but you were still relatively early on in terms of your deployment experience? It's an interesting question because it, it's one of those things that we all, when we when we sign on the dotted line, you particularly, it's the same for everybody, you want to go and put the skills that you learn into practice. You don't necessarily go looking for a war fighting, for a war to fight in, but that's the reality. The reality is that's why you are there. And until you do, you don't really know whether how you'll deal with it, how you'll stand up under the pressures at the time. So for me, these things were, whilst they weren't operational on the ground, these were operational support decisions and discussions that we were having in fairly constrained time frame. And I, what I found was that I think I was able to provide that frank and fearless advice to people to say, sorry, Brigade Commander Cantwell, you need these. And Chief of Army, I need you to sign off on this condensed course and you need to trust me on this that we are going to deliver a capability that will support that unit that's deployed. Of course I subsequently went on my time in command at Katsi was cut a little bit short because I then was tapped to deploy to into theatre in Iraq and so I worked closely with the Americans particularly the Marines. I had a Marine Corps Chief of Staff at the multinational headquarters and so I worked closely with the Americans and, and my time in the US helped that as well. What was the impact perhaps also on you personally? You've talked there very much about the professional side of things, but you had a family at the time? It was interesting because, as I said, my, my time in command at Cat C had been cut short because I was tapped to deploy. And I was also told at the same time that on my return, I'd be attending the Centre for Defence and Strategic Studies. So I'd been selected for what we <laughs> irreverently called Subject 1 for Brigadier. And so I had to, not only was I getting ready to deploy, and all the bits and pieces that go with that, pre-deployment training and all those sort of things, I also had to relocate the family to Canberra before I went. And I decided that that was the best way to do it rather than wait until I got back and then, you know, having having to do that move and what have you. And so from a family perspective, it was all hands on deck, particularly for the kids who were fairly young at the time. So it was them changing schools in the middle of the year, which we were not unused to because that happens in our line of work. But it was also going to Canberra, finding a place, getting them in and settled in a fairly short time frame, working out which school to send the kids to. So yeah, there were some pressures on the family. And, and of course, as with all, all our families, whether it's the mother or the father deploying, the other parent becomes that person who's deployed. So if, if the wife deploys, the husband becomes the mother as well as the father um, and vice versa. But that's not dissimilar to anything that we go through anyway. I mean, I always found that because I spent most of my time in operational units training for operations, I was always away on exercise. So my wife became um, mother, father, sister, brother, lawyer, teacher, um, while I wasn't there. Um, So there is an impost on families, to be sure. Now let's turn now to another significant role that you took overseas, and this was as, as advisor to the Australian ambassador to the United Nations. How did that role come about? I attended, as I mentioned before, the 
Centre for Defence and Strategic Studies. And at the, as we were going through that process, personnel folk would come across and talk to you about what's next. Um, and at that stage, they didn't have a role for me on promotion to Brigadier. In fact, very few of us, well, there was a bit of a bottleneck at that time for promotions and very few of our class were actually picked up, I think only one or two. And so it was a question of, you can stay in Canberra and we'll find you a job in Canberra, but we'd really like you to go and, and do this job over in New York. And I went home and I said to my family, so I've got a choice to make. Do we stay here in Canberra? We're nice and settled, a nice married quarter um, and what have you, and I'll take a job in, in, this, in Russell offices and what have you, or we can go to New York. And of course, the looks on their faces and the, the dancing around the patio when we were talking about it left no doubt in my mind that we were going to New York, which was, you know, tremendous. I mean, it, it, it was one of those things where I accepted the, the appointment, not that you ever have much choice in these matters, but I accepted the appointment on the basis that I probably owed my family a bit of time having put them through what they'd been through up to that point in all my, through my career. And so it was offered to me on the basis that it's a significant role. When you come back, we'll look at what might be next. Um, but in the meantime, we'd really like you to do this, this role because you've had experience with UNSO in the Middle East, so you've at least got a, an idea of United Nations operations. And the role itself was as the military advisor to the Australian ambassador to the UN. At that time, there were 192 countries in the UN, represented in the UN, and I think, I think it was 88 of them had military advisors. So there's quite a big military advisory group living in, and working in New York, which was nice because you, you got to work with lots of other countries at various rank levels in, military, in the military sphere. So Robert Hill was the ambassador at the time, the former defence minister, and it was also at the time when Prime Minister Rudd was elected in 2007 and embarked on the campaign for the non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council. So the UN Security Council, 15 countries, five permanent members, 10 rotational members every two years, five rotate every two years, and so he decided that we would compete for a seat about five years hence. And if you think election times, in elections in Australia run for lengthy periods of time, if you don't nominate for a seat that you're going to compete for a seat on the UN Security Council five to ten years out, you're going to miss the boat. And we nominated about four years out. So we were behind the eight ball from the get-go. So what was your day-to-day -day job in New York? What were you actually doing every day? People often ask me that question, not just in New York. The role was really to one of the committees in, in the UN is the C34, the Peacekeeping Committee. My role was predominantly to provide advice and input into that peacekeeping group. And of course, Australia has a long history in peacekeeping. We were the first peacekeepers back in um, uh, the late 1940s. But a lot of those countries, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they are real, they have big numbers of peacekeepers deployed. So it was how do we with our, I think we had 30, 40, 50 peacekeepers deployed how dare we provide advice to a country that's providing thousands? But the reality is that our expertise gained, gleaned over many, many years, not just in peacekeeping, but in general military roles, provided us with, a, it, with the background to be able to provide them with advice and about how they might better go about their business. One of the big issues at that time was in, a, in the late 90s, I think, the UN Security Council began mandating a task for in the mandate to protect civilians. And that did not sit well with many of the troop contributing countries who viewed protecting civilians as a national responsibility. 
that's the responsibility of the government in whom, into whose country you've deployed. And there was no doctrine, there was nothing. And that became, in many ways, that became the Australian Defence Force's input to the Australian government's campaign for a seat on the UN Security Council. And we ran, we partnered with Uruguay, a major troop contributing country, and we ran seminars, we wrote doctrine, we hosted conferences, all around trying to get people to understand that protecting civilians, if you're mandated to do it, you need to do it, you can't ignore it. Because a lot of the countries where they're going, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We know we've been told to do it, but we're not actually going to do it because that would cause too many political arguments. And it was a, I think it was a really valuable input into Australia's ultimately successful bid and continues on today. So what do you think was your legacy from that work? Was it the protection of civilians? Was that the thing you really are most proud of? Do you think was most important looking back? Yeah, without a doubt. And it was one of the roles within my little team in, in, the, uh, in the mission to the United Nations was the policy officer. And she was the defence policy officer. Um, and initially it was a lady by the name of Heidi Wilmot and then Lisa Sharland. And Lisa is now working in Washington with the Stimson Centre, working on protection of civilians. Um, and Lisa came into the mission just when we were starting this protection of civilians focus from a mission perspective, from an Australian mission perspective. The C-34 meets annually and it meets for about three weeks. And at the end of the three weeks, it produces a report. And it's the Special Committee on Peacekeeping Operations annual report on peacekeeping operations, what needs to change, what, other, what countries can do, what the Secretariat needs to do. And the way it works is the report of last year becomes the basis for this year. And if you want to make a change, that is a significant undertaking. The report had never, all the way from the time that the Security Council began mandating protection of civilians, the Special Committee on Peacekeeping Operations annual report never ever mentioned or addressed protection of civilians. And I took this to the C-34 the first year that I was there and we debated and debated, and in the end, we, we had wording to put into the report, but there was such opposition that the report would not be signed unless that wording was taken out. And so having had me meetings with Ambassador Hill and other groups, and I guess to, just to give you a sense, there is a group um, called the Non-Aligned Movement. The Non-Aligned Movement is 108 countries they're a significant block and, and if they want, they can, do, they can get things through or stop things from getting through. And so I then spent the next 12 months engaging with the head of the non-aligned movement, a lady by the name of Suad Alawi. The smartest thing I did, and it was something I learnt trial and error, was when we went into the second year of this, when I was there with this focus on protection of civilians, and a number of countries had put wording forward for how the report might reflect the protection of civilians. Australia, Canada, Canada, Australia, New Zealand negotiate as a block, as cans. We'd put forward some wording. The US put forward some wording. The European Union, 27 countries, they put forward some wording. And the non-aligned movement put forward some wording. And the smartest thing I did was on day one of the subgroup that was looking at negotiating this particular wording was to say to everybody, and we were very much front and centre of this, everybody knew this was an Australian initiative, was to say, I think we should start the negotiations 
based on the non-aligned movement wording. And everybody, everybody's jaw dropped because they all expected us to say, well, our wording is the right wording and that's where we should start. And I binned everybody's and said, we're going to work on the non-aligned movement and we'll, we'll progress that. And even Suad, the non-aligned movement head, looked at me and her jaw hit the ground as well. And from that point on, we were always going to have something. It was never going to be perfect, but it was going to be, it was always going to be something that at least acknowledged that the UN Security Council, and you need to understand that the Security Council is one body, then there's the General Assembly, and they don't often see eye to eye. They are two completely different entities. The General Assembly is 192 plus countries, the Security Council's 15. And the General Assembly will often just ignore what the Security Council is doing or speak back to the Security Council and say, we don't agree with that at all, and the majority of us sitting here. And so whilst they don't have a right of veto, they will raise these matters of concern. And so the C34 was very much a General Assembly committee. And so to have the General Assembly acknowledge in this report that they understood the Security Council's need to mandate protecting civilians as part of peacekeeping operations was a huge step forward. Um, and I think that's something that I was particularly proud of. Now, in 2013, you decided to leave the Australian Defence Force and enter the Australian Public Service. Mm -hmm. And then you went, then went on to work extensively with veterans. What was it like working with veterans when you'd had that career yourself did that give you any kind of special insight or indeed did it actually make the situation more complex for you it was actually 2011 when i transitioned out i worked with the department of veterans affairs federally for about 18 months and then in 2014 was selected to take on the role of director of veterans sa the state government veterans agency i think what it does it does having served and working with veterans, it does two things. One, it does give you an understanding of the veteran. It does give you an understanding of their angst when things aren't delivered to them the way they would like them to be delivered to them by the Department of Veterans Affairs. But it also gives you a lot of credence within the department because people understand that that old phrase, been there and done that. Um, and so probably if you're saying something about how this is impacting veterans, they probably should listen as civilians without that same level of experience. And so I think it works both ways. Um, I still recall, I think I'd been in the role with Department of Veterans Affairs for about a week and there was a client had rung with, who was a bit of a habitual caller and had some significant problems and, and really did not think much of the department at all. And to the point where none of the staff wanted to go and meet with this person at all. And I said, tell him to come in, I'll meet with him. And he and I had a great chat. You know, we, we were able to sort out a number of things that were troubling for him, uh, maybe not to his complete satisfaction, but at least he understood he'd had a meeting with someone in the department who was one of his, an ex-military person who probably understood more than, without being disrespectful at all, than the civilian who understands the doctrine or the, or the, the legislation, but not the practical application. And I've always been someone who doctrine is a point from which to deviate. If it's legal, I'll do it even though it might not be the right step in the sequence, if we can get to an outcome, then let's get to an outcome as quickly as we possibly can to the, to the benefit of all. It was an interesting time. And then, of course, I was um, selected for the role with the state government, which was a whole other 
focus, I guess. Yeah. So what do you think was your greatest achievement during that time as director of Veterans SA? Because obviously that was during the Anzac centenary commemoration period. Probably the thing I, I, I was most keen to focus on was initially, yes, the centenary of Anzac, and I can talk about that in a moment, but that was there in the background that was always bubbling along because there were always, uh, I, I used to say to my staff, every day is 100 years of something. 100 years ago today, something happened, you know, that we need to acknowledge um, or at least be aware of, you know, based around the centenary of Anzac. But I think more than that, my my biggest focus when I arrived there was to orient the agency and the government in many ways that veterans is not just commemoration. Veterans is, there is a whole cohort now, uh, and I'm at the older end of that Timor, Iraq, Afghanistan cohort that are now exiting or looking at exiting that we need to be prepared for because at the end of the day, the federal government pays for veterans, but states deliver the services. So the federal government pays for the white card and the gold card and the healthcare with accepting conditions and what have you, but the state government is the government that actually delivers those services. So we need to make sure that at a state level, we're placed to be able to deliver the care and whatever else it is that's required for those who have served. One of my main focus, and I think we were reasonably successful in doing it, was to, re, was to orient the government towards looking forwards more than looking backwards, which we tended to be because it was all about commemoration with the centenary of Anzac. So it was, a, it was really a question of leveraging the centenary of Anzac focus to look at what's next for the, for the, for the contemporary working age veteran. Um, and I think we managed to do that. I was particularly well supported by Martin Hamblin-Smith, who himself, he was the minister, who himself was a, a veteran. Um, and so he, he got it. Um, and he and I used to have some great conversations because we both, he was the minister, but he, was, he got out as a lieutenant colonel, so he had to call me sir. I'm kidding, but we often joked about that. But he was a great support as well. And I think between the two of us, we were able to achieve some, some good things. From a centenary perspective, we managed to resurrect the Anzac Centenary Memorial Walk on Kintore Avenue near Government House. That is now, I think, a really good tribute to the Australian community involvement and commitment to Australia's commitment to conflict through a century of service. I think the uh, the state dinner that we predominantly ran with a new government in place under Premier Marshall, and it was their first state dinner, I think recognising the centenary of the armistice. I think that was a pretty significant undertaking. And there were lots of other smaller things, Anzac on Torrens, which I won't bore your listeners with, but was lumbered on us about a week out from Anzac Day when the RSL said, we can't do it. Um, and we said, oh, well, we'd better do it. And we were able to pull that off pretty successfully as well. But I had a great team that supported me as well. So you're now you're the chair of the Veterans Advisory Council, and you've just talk there about the importance of being forward-looking and addressing the needs of contemporary veterans. So what is it you're hoping to achieve now? I have said to the council that I don't have a personal agenda here. The agenda is their agenda. So my expectation of the council is that they will set the agenda. There are so many things just in recent times that have occurred and are occurring. There is the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide and that report will be significant, what that report says and the implications of that report and its recommendations, particularly at a state level, where I go back to that point I made, the federal government will fund, but the states will need to deliver whatever the recommendations that are accepted are. The very recent announcement about the submarines, 
I think there is real potential here in South Australia that the veteran community in South Australia will grow significantly as a result of this because there will be people who will transition out of the military who will be, because of their military experience, will be natural fits to be project managers. And you don't have to be a submariner to manage a project for a particular component of a submarine, whatever that might be. Um, and I, so I think there's, there's a potential here for the veteran community to expand in South Australia and certainly conversations that we will have around their council table. Um, and probably with government as well about what that might mean. But that's very early days, and obviously that's a, lo- that's a long, I'll say slow burn, but we need to get moving on it straight away. The Brereton report and the outcomes from the Brereton report, uh, I'm watching very closely, and I think a lot of us are, because we did, over the many years we were involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think we did deploy people too often without fully understanding what it was that we were asking them to do and maybe not necessarily giving them all of the tools that they needed to be able to be successful in what they were doing. Um, And I think there is a good deal of reflection that will be needed based on what comes out of the Brereton Report and the subsequent investigations. Um, There'll be a, a good case to pause for reflection on how we command these operations and what we ask of our soldiers and sailors and airmen and women. And given your unique positions that you've held, the fact that you've served yourself, what would you like perhaps people listening to this podcast to understand about contemporary veterans? Because there's a lot of um, misunderstanding sometimes in the community, particularly around things such as post-traumatic stress and how that might affect people. What's your kind of message perhaps to people listening to kind of get them on track with how perhaps they should be thinking about contemporary veterans? We're not all broken. There are some that are, because of the nature of the service that they've undertaken and the deployments and what have you, that are really challenged by their service. But the majority of former serving people have a skill set that you you can't buy purely because of the way the military has trained them, the skills that it's given to them, and just the way they think. In the military, we're taught things that give you a way of solving problems. Um, and that's what veterans bring. We're problem solvers. You mentioned post-traumatic stress. I have long been a believer that, um, and I get into trouble for this quite a lot, that and in fact, I wrote an opinion piece many years ago to recommend that we don't continually refer to post-traumatic stress as a disorder, that it is a condition that for many can be managed. A disorder implies permanency, and I think for some that is sadly the case, but for many that is not necessarily the case. And people who are looking to employ people Sadly, there are some in the in the civilian community who will say, well, I've got a veteran who may be damaged because of his service and someone who's not, well, I'll go with the person who's not. My advice to them is go with the veteran because that veteran will bring you so much more. They will turn up on time every day. They will put in a hard, solid day's work. They will be keen to learn. They will ask questions. They will challenge. And yes, occasionally they might need a bit of personal time to deal with certain things. But at the end of the day, I can guarantee that 99% of those people that you would hire will be an asset to your business, much more than someone else you might be looking at. And given the diversity of your career, the opportunities that you've had, if there's anyone listening to this podcast who perhaps is thinking, well, I'd like to go and work for the United Nations, or indeed I'd like to work with veterans, what's your advice to them? 
the United Nations is a fascinating place. It will frustrate the hell out of anyone that goes there, but um, it is a fascinating organisation. And at the end of the day, it's all we've got. Multilaterally, it's all we've got. We have alliances and what have you, but as an international all-encompassing body, it's all we've got. So we've got to try and make it work the best we can. Um, yes, it has flaws. Yes, it's it's probably the slowest moving bureaucracy that you've ever seen, but it is all we've got. And I would, I would um, encourage anyone to, at the very least, investigate because the opportunities to see parts of the world that you wouldn't normally see and do work that you wouldn't normally do we did trips to, when I was in New York, the, the military advisors all went to places like Darfur and looked at the refugee camps there and tried to come bring their, the plight of those people back to the UN um, in New York to make some decisions favourable to those people. Um, places that are, you wouldn't put on your bucket list, but they are absolutely worth being a part of and seeing because it does open your eyes to how lucky we are um, here, we, you know, there's a great debate raging at the moment about the cost of the, the nuclear-powered submarines. Well, gosh, what a nice debate to have rather than have to debate about where's my next meal or um, I don't have a roof over my head and I've got all sorts of things going on around me and gunshots every night and, and what have you. So I think anyone looking at, at that sort of thing, hook in. Um, at least give it a good look because there are opportunities to see the world and see, see parts of the world that you wouldn't normally expect to see. From the military perspective, um, the profession of arms is an honourable profession. It is highly respected in this. We, we have an amazing tradition and history in, a, in the Australian military that is, is beyond comparison. I, I often talk about in 1918, the Australian soldier was the most feared soldier on the, on the battlefields on the Western Front. Um, the Germans were absolutely petrified of the Australians because they referred to us as madmen because it was almost we'd, we'd been thrown into the mix so often that our soldiers were almost like, if we don't get it done, no one's going to get it done and we just want to go home. We've been doing this for four or five years now. We just want it over. Um, and that was the mentality. And some of those acts of ordinary people doing amazing things um, is just something that we should be incredibly proud of. And I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that you don't have to be there as long as I was. You can go and do your few years of service. And I guarantee it will, it will change your life. Colonel Rob Manton, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, your memories and your insights over your 30-year military career and indeed all the work you've done since. Thanks, Sharon. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Life on the Line. I'm Sharon Rascal-Dare. During his conversation with Sharon, Rob mentioned John Cantwell. Angus Horton interviewed John in Season 4. In Number 82, John Cantwell, Volume 1. Only to be uh, shot at and cut off and pushed into enemy territory and found myself on the wrong side of the enemy lines, surrounded by Iraqis in the middle of the night with a British tank organization busily attacking them with me in the middle of it. Meanwhile, American helicopters were trying to shoot me with missiles. And volume two. There are ways to tackle this damn thing, this PTSD. And uh, it's important that people know that there are others who have been through something like that. Follow this show at Life on the Line podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at LOTL pod on Twitter and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. 
Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>